Hi, I'm Kirsten Gouldie. We have with us Christina Cernansky, an advocate for many things, currently focused on mental health with a nonprofit that supports advocacy for mental health. There's a saying on your LinkedIn that I want to read. Let's break down the barriers of stigma and allow people to come out from the shadows of their struggles to thrive. Welcome to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Here's your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to IntelliKey Leadership Stories, where we share with you stories about leadership, but also how the leaders are developing in their life and pursuing and advancing their soul's purpose and their human potential. I'm Mark Stenson, president of Bioscience Bridge, a heart-centered brain consultancy. Hi, and I'm Kirsten Gouldie, the CEO of Pure IntelliKey and also an intuitive advisor that is here to guide and support individuals and companies along achieving their higher soul purpose. We're just so glad that you're listening with us today. We continue to be amazed at the kind of conversations and guests that interview with us here. And today's guest is no different, Kirsten. Yeah, I am so excited. We have with us Christina Cernansky. I know Christina personally, I've had the pleasure of meeting her about six to nine months ago now and really learning more about who you are, Christina, and the contribution you are to the world. You know, I think one of the things I love the most about you is you are the embodiment of conscious leadership and aligning with something bigger than yourself to make a change that for many, many, many lives. And, you know, Christina, I've listened to some of your interviews and having talked to you personally, I know you're working closely with police departments, bringing awareness for mental health. You're currently with a nonprofit that supports advocacy for mental health. It's such a pleasure to be here with you and to be able to share my experiences as well as the work that I do to help others, which by the way, I was shown the way by many, many others and just kind of taking the torch and hoping to carry it forward and hoping someone else will also carry a torch past me as I mentor other people to do this work. So I, as a little girl at a very young age, I remember people asking me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to save the world. And I always had that. Now I know it's not a heavy burden on me. However, it's more so of a path that I have. Everything that has brought me to this place in my life right now has brought me on that journey. But when I was little, I used to think of that concept as just so big and grandiose. But for some reason, that was always my response and what I felt and what I embodied. I come from a very long line of political family members on both sides of the spectrum. And I firmly believe in reincarnation and me picking my parents to help me with this foundation. And I got my starts in, I grew up in the South. So I grew up in Georgia and Florida. And I call myself a jackette of all trades. I know how to deep sea fish and also ride a horse. And in college, I decided I wanted to be a marine biologist. I wanted to save all all the animals in the oceans. But then I was really disappointed that be to become a marine biologist, it's pre-med track. So 
I realized really quickly that that was not my calling. However, I discovered politics and I was able to figure out how you could advocate and legislate and talk to government officials about protecting the environment for ocean animals. Shortly after I graduated from college uh, from Florida Atlantic University, I moved to Washington, D.C., I then realized I, I got into this career of politics and I remember sitting at the at Thanksgiving table and kind of announcing to my family, I'm a lobbyist. And they all kind of said, oh, that's nice, dear. So are we. Uh, and they kind of disclosed that they also worked in the White House. Both two of my aunts worked in the White House in different administrations. I was then realized that further than cemented the idea that I picked my family to help give me this baseline. And I worked in D.C. for about 13 years, worked for my first five years right after college on peace and security issues, arms control. And this is a world that I didn't even know about, but I was so grateful that my higher power threw me into this position working for a women's organization for nuclear disarmament. And at that time, this was 2005, and I didn't really know that much. I knew about the Cold War, but I really didn't know that much about the arms race and Star Wars. And so I got thrown into that world. And that is where I actually was able to learn a lot about the federal budget and where our money goes looking at kind of wasteful spending. And now when I say that, I'm not saying cut the entire military budget, but there's a way to be able to be more focused and aligned with our priorities, our moral code and our value system as Americans to invest in in programs that we need, invest in certain military things that work, that we have an enemy supposedly to use them on. But that's really not the case. And so for about five years, I worked on that, did budget auditing, and it was so fascinating fascinating to understand the underbelly of Washington, D.C. I worked with women state legislators that had higher aspirations to get elected to Congress, and we educated these women on the the federal defense budget educated them on how to properly message themselves to talk about these things to their constituents. And this is typically not uh, an issue area that women elected officials focus on, but it was so empowering to be able to, to be a part of that catalyst for change. The highlight of my career there, we helped to get 10 women elected to Congress that we endorsed, that we helped to educate. And that was just such an eye-opening experience. And I had such a great privilege doing that. I then moved on from that and worked in environmental conservation issues from the climate security, national security perspective. Climate climate change, climate adaptation is a national security threat. And so continuing on with my military focus, working with military leaders on and this climate change is a national security perspective. And so those two jobs, I did that for about 10 years, gave me a great foundation that helped me move into a more advocacy role in mental health that I'm in right now. My father is from the military, and so I had this stern, regimented upbringing. He's a Marine, and so Marines don't cry. And still to this day, I still have some challenges to overcome. And just being being able to openly cry and be vulnerable in that space. About eight years ago, I had a lot of trauma happen to me, not happen to me, but come in into my life. Within three months, uh, I had an engagement break off. My only cousin had a traumatic brain injury and passed. My dog died. It was there that I decided to do some soul searching. I knew that I was not happy. I was not in the right space. So for about three years, I was soul searching. A couple of years after those traumatic things that happened to me, my best friend died by suicide. That brought me to a very dark place because 
I felt guilty that I didn't know. I felt guilty that I couldn't help her. I felt ashamed. I also didn't want anyone to know that she died by suicide. I couldn't even say the word. From there, this dark place that I found myself in, and I share this story when I'm with law enforcement officers now, that when I was in that dark space, I didn't know how to get out because I was raised to not feel, to not have emotions, and to also be the leader. Never ask for help, always be the helper. Damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. So when you find yourself in that dark space and you don't know how to articulate your emotions or how to be vulnerable, it's not very good for your psyche. And it took me some time to get out of that. And thankfully, my grandmother who passed years prior, she came to me in a dream and she said, Christina, why are you doing this to yourself? Why are you doing this to your mother? You want to live, you don't want to die. So I woke up the next morning thinking, okay, I don't want to die. However, I don't know how to live. Shortly thereafter, I had an opportunity to dog sit in Sun Valley, Idaho. And I was at Washington, D.C. at this time. So I came, I, I visited Sun Valley, Idaho. I always went, had a spiritual foundation and a religious foundation. I had a spiritual experience in a church in Sun Valley. And I thought, I'm going to move. This is where I'm going to move. I'm going to start over. And within the first week of moving to Sun Valley, I met my, I met my what we call uh, NAMI Mama. So I currently work for an organization called National Alliance on Mental Illness and the local affiliate that I work for is Wood River Valley, which is in Sun Valley, Idaho. This organization helps families and individuals work with, address, and manage their mental health challenges. Now, at this time, I didn't even know what a mental health challenge was. I couldn't even say the word suicide. I had no idea what anxiety and depression really were. This woman that saved my life, my angel, she, over the course of about five months, introduced me to the ideas of what recovery is, what anxiety is. I started looking inside and looking at really what was bringing me down, of which I never thought of because I just thought I had to focus on my career and give back to the world and save the world, save anything and everything. One of my challenges that I face in addition to my mental health challenges is that no one ever gave me a cape, nor do I have one, right? No one issued me a cape, nor do I have one. So I try not to, to go in too much rescuing people or things. I always had that focus, right? Because I wanted to save the world and I still want to save the world. When I found myself in this dark place, it was this woman that helped me realize that I had this darkness in me. In January 2016, I decided that I wanted to stop consuming vices, things that were not, things that were bringing me down. So I was trial and error. Let's just stop drinking. Let's try to stop smoking. Let's try to eat healthy. Let's try to juice and do all these things for a year. Just focus on me without outside influences. And at that time, I was living in, I was renting a place from a woman who wrote a biography on the teddy bear. Her grandfather brought the original teddy bear over. So her whole condo was had a lot of Teddy Roosevelt things, books and, and, and whatnot. So I started exploring about Teddy Roosevelt. Sure enough, Teddy and I, we share the same birthday, October 27th. Sure enough, when he had some traumatic experiences losing his wife and his mother at the same time, he went off to North Dakota to find his soul. That traumatic experience that I had with my those three um, deaths, I was living in North Dakota. And so there's a lot of parallels. And so I read in this book, Teddy Roosevelt, he got drunk once. He got intoxicated once in college. And then he said, 
why would I want to alter my state of reality? And right then and there, it was just a paradigm shift. Why do I want to alter my state of reality? Whether it be with sugar, alcohol, tobacco, whether it be cheese, I'm battling that right now. So why would you want to alter your state of reality? And so from that point was just, I, my journey just took off. And so that was January, 2016, a month, two months later, I started consulting for NAMI of the Wood River Valley. And my journey to wellness has been also helping to grow this organization. Six months into this journey, I met a, a young woman who, a high school sophomore who had a very similar story to mine. And together we created this adolescent teen support group where teens are able to share on what they're doing, what they're, what they're coping with, um, what they're managing. And then we also teach them how to connect their central nervous system with their anxiety. We use this model called the community resiliency model. And this model has helped me tremendously. And I just want to scream at the top of the mountaintops to be able to share on this tool because no one has ever explained to me since I was such... Now, in my recovery, in my journey to wellness, I realized that I'm an awkward, anxious kid. I give speeches quite a bit, and 80% of the time, I have a panic attack. Usually, it lasts for most of the speech. I used to black out because I had so much adrenaline, and I'm learning how to ground myself. I'm actually pretty good right now, which is interesting. So we teach adolescents on how to ground themselves and recognize their central nervous system with what's happening. So... Um, when you have elevated levels of anxiety, where, where is that sensation? Is it, is it in your heart? Is it in your tummy? What is the sensation? Okay. Then that's first of all, recognizing what's happening, uh, naming it, holding it, putting on a shelf. Um, and then secondly, we share on grounding techniques. Okay. Take a deep breath, provide oxygen into your body, um, Remember the most peaceful time that you have while you were camping? Do you hear the water from the stream? Do you hear the, the wind blowing through the leaves? Do you smell the, the fall air? And so connecting those tools with your central nervous system and how to ground yourself, I believe, firmly believe we are preventing suicides. We are preventing substance abuse. We are helping people to feel and to own that vulnerable space that we are just so uncomfortable with being in and talking about. Uh, so since I started doing this work um, nearly four and a half years ago, almost five years, I has, I've made it my calling to be able to share on this journey of wellness. And I got this idea because I met a gentleman by the name of Kevin Hines and he shared his suicide journey he survived a, a jump at the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, me and the young woman that helped to found that adolescent group, we met him and we shared our stories with him. And he took our hands and he said, thank you for sharing. I'm so glad you're here with us. I'm so glad you're here with me. Please join me on the ripple effect. And so hearing his story empowered me to be able to share my story. And from that point on, the adolescent group that we founded called the Bluebirds, even when you're feeling down and blue, remember you will fly. 
has just taken off. We started out with three kids in one high school. Now we have nearly 50 in that high school and we're in six schools. So we're in the middle schools and high school here in Blaine County. It's just such a beautiful thing to be a part of and to see because I wish I had that when I was a teenager. I was running away. I at that time was, um, when I was a teenager, I was a raver. And so I felt as if it was a need to, for three or four days, run away and do ungodly amounts of things. In turn, where that created a space within my brain where I'm lacking the necessary dopamine. I, I don't produce the average amount of dopamine as other people's brains because as my brain was developing as a teenager, I was essentially killing my dopamine receptors. And I didn't discover this until I was about three years into my journey of recovery because I watched the movie by Steve Carell about a boy. And in that, he talks about his journey with his son's recovery process. And what we're seeing in these times is that the drugs that are out right now can permanently destroy your dopamine receptors. And so that's why it's so hard to get people to come back because there's no way unless there is prescribed medication and you stay on it to release the dopamine. It's a full circle approach of how I believe I was here to meet this young woman, to start this Bluebirds and understand my own recovery journey to be able to share with others that this is a reality and it's a fact. And a lot of us have done some damage to our dopamine receptors. And so we're, we're constantly looking to fill our brains with the dopamine and serotonin that we have kind of obsoleted. We share on what is your tool in your toolbox, what gives you the, the dopamine and the serotonin. And so on a daily basis, I have to go through a checklist of things that give me those things. And sometimes I do take medication and that's okay. We need to be able to share about this openly because my generation just say no to drugs. Um, it was the, the, the fried egg in the ad, but really it's having the conversation of your chemical reaction in your body is a very powerful thing. And it's important for us to all understand and recognize what goes on in our body. And we have these chemical reactions every single day. And it's a, a daily reprieve of, of trying to get this, this, these chemicals back into your body. Mm. Well, Christina, so, I just want to acknowledge and honor the fact that you told us this very personal story. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, you, you said a couple of things that I just would like to ask you about. And that is, you know, you, nobody gave you a cape. You don't want to wear a cape. And yet you have a calling. You know, mm. where, how do you balance this sort of personal burden with a calling to help others without trying to own them and fix them. And I think it's a, it's a balancing act. Many, many of us uh, with our families or our own experiences face. And I would re really like to hear your perspective on that. Oh, thank you for asking that. That's actually one thing that I'm, I'm trying to work on right now. Last week, I was nominated for this award. It was 40 under 40. And I don't want to tell anybody I, I don't like the spotlight. It makes me anxious. Um, I also hide behind my story, right? So I, I have now no problem just telling anybody anything that they want to know. But I also have to remember when I'm at the Starbucks line, I should not be 
telling them my suicide journey, right? It's like, people don't need to know that. There may be a time and a place, is that what you're saying? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I also am working with some teachers on how to ground myself and be able to sense and to know when and where and what I should be sharing when I start to meet people. That's what I'm working on right now is to be able to decipher and to read people and their energy and be able to move forward with that instead of just being an open book with everyone. Because it's also emotionally hard on me. So doing this talk is emotionally draining. So I know I learned the hard way that I can't do more than one of these a day. One time I had three and that wasn't good. And so it's a learning process. It really is. And I, I look forward to being able to see where I'm at in, in a couple of years as I fine tune these, these kind of skills that I'm learning. But I also trust in the process, right? I trust that even being here with you right now, it's teaching me some skill sets that I need. It's also people, you can't lead a horse, you lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. It's also very frustrating when I think I know everything and I have all the answers and I could fix you and your family just as long as you do this one thing. And follow my checklist and uh, uh-huh. yeah, take these three easy steps. Well, it's, it's my work. I, I handle about half a dozen calls a week from parents and siblings and spouses that have their loved ones in a mental health challenge. I didn't even, I didn't go over what a mental health challenge is, but it, it's once a challenge, a mental health challenge is one that changes your brain. That can be the DSM-5 is like this thick. It's, it's like two inches thick of a book. Diagnoses, gaming just got added, eating disorders, OCD, bipolar, substance abuse disorder. I forgot what the shopaholic one was, but I definitely have that, right? Because you, you shop and you get that addiction of the serotonin and the dopamine boost in your brain. That's a chemical change in your body and your brain. So I'm constantly on the phone with loved ones saying, I just don't want to deal with them or I don't know why they can't just be fixed. And sadly, when you're dealing with the loved one, the end result, if it doesn't get better, is getting arrested for trespassing or having them committed if it gets to that point. And that's a hard conversation to have with family members. But that's what part of our work is, is walking you through that process and those steps. And not only am I just saying it as appear, but we also connect them with family members that have walked that journey mm-hmm. already and can hold their hand through that process. And do you find that families are open? I mean, you've been so open in sharing, but are the families open to listening? You know, the, the listening part is the hard part for a lot of people. I was just curious when you're talking to families, how they're receiving it. Some families are very receptive. Some are at their wits end and they're just like, I'm ready to get off this merry-go-round. Just get me off this merry-go-round. What do I do? And then, but obviously if money isn't is, is a factor, there's a lot of options, right? I, we also come across religious beliefs mm-hmm. that sometimes it's the devil and it's going to go away or the stigma of even opening up and talking about it. I've helped numerous families that for years, okay, we're here for you. We'll, we'll, we'll coach them and they still don't pick up the phone and call us until it's gotten to a serious crisis. But yeah, it's it's a stigma. I have also talked with some people that are, you know, our, our group is very confidential and a lot of parents don't want anyone to know that their son or daughter is not as average, right? Whatever normal is, which is just a setting on a, a dishwasher. 
And so, and that's, that's the whole conversation about stigma and shame and the power of vulnerability. I wish that there would have been more of this when I was growing up because maybe we wouldn't have been able to be scared to talk about my trials and tribulations and could have helped other family friends that had kids that went through the same thing as I did years later. And so we have to remember that by our silence, what is the, the Martin Luther King quote that our silence, something about silence. Um, yes, that's, that's very much true for social actions and social change. Our silence can sometimes be much more deafening and harmful than us not speaking up or, or speaking up just minorly. When we speak up, we help a lot of other people uh, as well as pave the way for other families and others that have gone through that. We were just talking about that on our last podcast, Neutrality and Apathy are Deadly killer. So I have a question because I have raised two daughters and times are different. They're different than when I was younger. I'm 51. They are these kids. And, you know, in my work as an intuitive, I meet with a lot of younger people and anxiety is embedded in who and what they are because they're so clear that they don't have to save the world by choice. They have to save the world out of necessity. And that burden really grips up. They become immobile with this awareness. They come in consciously aware of this. So anxiety is just such a normal conversation around these younger people today. What advice would you offer up to them? I think that we're living in an age where people are more open to being empathic. I think whether that's because of the vulnerability and that we're having these conversations, or it's just our spirits being more open, depending on where you are in the belief system on this. But my advice is getting the grounding techniques and recognizing exactly what is happening in your body when you're feeling anxious, pinpointing it, where in your bloodstream, where in your body is it being, you know, sparking? When is it where, where is it on fire? And breathing through that. And I don't want to sit here and bore everyone with the whole mindfulness meditation thing. Cause I am, I'm the one that like goes to yoga and I'm like angry by the end because I have to like calm down for an hour, but it helps me to be able to pinpoint exactly where it is in my body, talk to it, own it, put it on a shelf, hold it in your hand rather than stuff it and avoid it because it's happening for a reason. And by recognizing it and calling it a friend is a lot easier than avoiding it and dealing with it never or when you're on skid row. There's, there's a reason why it's happening. I've realized that I'm an anxious kid because I'm supposed to be hypersensitive. I'm supposed to be seeing the fluorescent lights around and feeling people's energy by understanding what's going on in my surroundings. But by not recognizing it and avoiding it, it makes it a million times worse. Yes. And that's, yeah. I was curious about that because there are many people who say, I don't want to just talk about it because I'll call it stigma, but I don't want to talk about it because it doesn't make me feel better. It makes me feel worse or that I'm exposing myself or embarrassing myself to let you know my story. And I'm just curious what your experience or what your learnings are from that standpoint. Well, we all don't have to talk about our journeys to strangers. However, there needs to be an outlet, whether it be writing, whether it be talking to a therapist, whether it be talking to a tribe of people that also understands you, dancing, right? Being able to have a relationship with your anxiety and your depression, I think is really important. 
And there's, like I said, there's different ways on managing that. And also knowing it helps me knowing that there are so many others out there that have the same thing that I'm going through. I researched for about six months before I started my journey to wellness on all the famous people that didn't drink or drug or had this great lifestyle. And it was because they were talking about how all those things exacerbate their anxiety. And so Lady Gaga, she talks about her anxiety all the time and her trauma and her PTS. So I think it also helps by recognizing that you're not unique. As much as we want to sit here and think that we are very special, which we all are, but we're all going through very similar things and we're all navigating the same thing. And I think the more that we're open about that and recognizing that, the less tension and anxiety our world will be going through because then we'll be in the shared space, right? Because right now we're kind of like all closed off and siloed and like, oh no, you can't see my vulnerability. Oh no, you can't see my anxiety. Everything is perfect. But what if we all were just, we blew out those doors and then just be all opened up and we were sharing in that. Like, how powerful would that be? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you another question. You know, having come out of corporate, very toxic, very abusive, it's all about dominance and winning, and whoever was left behind, so be it, leave them behind. A constant anxiety producer, which leads to disease, which leads to many other illnesses, including mental breakdowns by 45 or 50. What would you say to the corporate leaders and those in corporate who are experiencing that? Because, you know, the necessity of the dollar, you have to make a paycheck. Some people are really feel stuck in what they have to do to provide for themselves and their family. I'm in my fifth career. Not to say that I recommend that, but I'm always, <laughs> I'm always evolving and I'm always growing. And every single career that I've had has built the foundation for my next career. And I'm able to grow and to be a part of. I also feel like it's very important to mentor people and lift up people that haven't had the same worldly experience or background as you that want to be in that space with you. Help bring them forward. Help bring them into that space and raise them up. Bring them to your table. There's a saying that we have locally here now, which I, it's not new. Who is at your table? When you are with your friends, when you're with your family, people uh, in your social network, who's at your table? Because you are, as much as I hate to admit this, my parents' biggest, my father's biggest thing to me was you are who your friends are. It took me forever to realize that. And so really, who is at your corporate table? Who is at your team? Who is on your team? And diversity inclusion of not only our ethnic backgrounds and where we grew up, but where our socioeconomic backgrounds our experiences. You know, I learned early on that in order to be an effective manager, I surround myself with people that have skills that I don't have that make my job much more easier as well as lift me up, right? So surrounding yourself with people that raise your vibration as well as raise up your career, your skill set to be able to push your initiatives forward. I also think it's extremely important to not put people down. In Washington, D.C., it was a doggy dog world. A lot of the times it came from women, women that 
were so-called leaders within the feminist movement and were very insecure. So recognize whenever you are passing judgment, whenever you want to be catty, whenever you want to have an opinion, a negative, any negative opinion, where is that coming from? Because it's most likely coming from a space of vulnerability that makes you uncomfortable from some baggage somewhere in your life. Not being able to recognize that because that that's disempowering not only for you, but your team and humanity. And so I'm constantly looking for people that make me uncomfortable, that can teach me something. And I have that uncomfortable conversation. So I, I get this sense that you are there, there might be something that's, that's challenging you about my personality, or did I say something that might've offended you? I apologize. Let's talk about this. Let's talk through this rather than passing judgment and avoiding and trying to take someone down. Very good. I'm also interested in the organization that we've been talking about, NAMI. What are some of the programs that people should know about that you're working on? So NAMI is a national organization and there are 600 affiliates across the country. Each state and affiliate has various strengths. Some are stronger than others and some have different programs that other affiliates don't have. Almost every NAMI has a family support network as well as a peer support network. There are some youth programs and some affiliates. However, ours is the first in the nation that's in the schools. I just pride myself on those bluebirds because I just can't wait to see where this is going to go in the future. But I encourage everyone to be able to look at where their local NAMI is and, and what services they provide. And if you can't financially donate to participate in some of their events and their conversations, volunteer for them because we're the little nonprofits that could. We seek to educate, support, and advocate. So we are on the front lines at the advocacy tables in Washington, D.C., as well as almost every single state capital, educating lawmakers on policies that impact people with mental health challenges. I testified a couple of years ago, something that was eye-awakening for me, on pharmaceutical substitutions, because pharmacists shouldn't just substitute a generic brand, uh, some of these medications that have could be a serious side effect of bouncing up your chemicals in your brain, right? So that, that's some of the policies that we advocate for, because if we don't advocate for those, then who will? That's wonderful. I was going to ask you, this concept of IntelliKey, that is the title of our podcast, IntelliKey Leadership, says that the person inside is like a seed. They, they can grow, they need nurturing, they need watering and so forth. But like you were saying before, a person wouldn't be defined by their depression or their anxiety or their bipolar, you know, it's it's not the label we should put on a person, but rather this potential, this purpose inside of them that should be nurtured and grown. How, how can you help people see that, see beyond the, what people would call a disorder as if, well, there's something wrong with you. I love the fact that you say, you know, I'm going to put a DSM-5 number on what you are and your diagnosis. No. I'm a human potential. I'm a soul's purpose. You know, I'd like to see beyond that number. What, what can you tell us to be thinking about in that regard? Well, thank you for bringing that up. I have interesting conversations with some people that have shared, I'm not sure if I believe in your work because you focus too much on the illness. And my response to that is, unless you identify the challenge, what is holding you back, the illness, you can't live into wellness. You can't move to that space of getting better. So 
I very much am proud of my work, recognizing that I have a challenge. And in order for me to be well, I have to know what that is and to be able to work on that. Now, this is something that I'm going to be managing for the rest of my life. Some people fully recover and then they never have to worry about their depression. They just have a blip on the screen. Some people have this for the rest of their lives. But I think that it's important that we don't avoid it. Our bodies are on the cellular level, have chemicals and we don't even, the tip of the iceberg, we don't even know what, you know, all the different ways that our bodies function. We're just starting to understand gut brain health. We have to accept what it is and then we can do trial and error to see what works. That's great. Mm, That's beautiful. I love that. And, And that also too speaks to the epigenetics, that component that the discovery that, um, you know, going a little bit into the woo woo and not so woo woo, but right. There's a convergence of the scientists and the shamans. The shamans have known about this since the beginning of time. And people like Bruce Lipton and Greg Braden and Joe Dispenza, they're starting to really bring this to the forefront. We can pull it out of our DNA and our cellular memory and not have the environment feed that and recreate who we are. That's a whole other show. Adverse child. <laughs> well, it good. Is. Let's book it. So, <laughs> it's called Adverse Child Experiences. And I highly recommend for homework, doing some research on that. There's a documentary called Paper Tigers. It's on Amazon, I believe. And then the predecessor to that is Resilience. It talks about the fight or flight. And as we're growing up, if your body is constantly in fight or flight as a child and it has the escalated fight or flight response, how do you think that you're going to live out your life as a teenager and and as an adult? And so a person is not acting out just because they feel like acting acting out. It's because that's what they know. And there's an ACEs test. I think it's about 12 questions. And you would think that because of my background, my upbringing, I'm probably pretty low. Actually, I'm pretty high. I've got a pretty high ACE score. So no wonder I attempted to take my life twice. No wonder I had challenges with substance abuse. No wonder I want to avoid talking about these things. No wonder I can't cry. And this is a life long journey. But again, recognizing it, owning it, putting on a shelf, naming it, seeing it is the first step. That's very powerful. I think we'll close on that point. Christina, we just can't thank you enough. You have enlightened more than educated. It's great to be educated, but enlightened is, I think, another level. Right, Kirsten? Yeah, absolutely. And you know I love you and I love the work that you're doing for people. People need to be seen and heard. That's what does support life, human life, the value of human life. So I'm glad we got to talk about it again, the value of human life. Yes, but we'd love to continue the conversation again in the future. So let's stay connected. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. Yes, all the best with all the programs you're working on. Mm, Thank you. It's just been another great interview, and we continue to hear wonderful stories about how people are going through their own journeys and being aware of what their soul's purpose and what their real calling is. And I like what Christina said. Yes, there's a calling. Sometimes it feels like a burden. Sometimes I feel like I need to wear the cape, but none of us should be out to fix anybody else. You know, what their life's journey is, is what it is. They're on their journey to advance their own full potential. And it's not up to us to tell them what that should be. 
that was a main takeaway for me. And plus, I think the title of this uh, podcast will be Who's at Your Table? I uh, love that. Yeah. The, the, the idea that, you know, you're the summation of the people you work with, most often the people you're hanging out with, your friends, your family. And, and I think or that, giving to. Who are you giving to? All right. Well, thanks again, Kirsten. We look forward to seeing everybody next time for another edition of IntelliKey Leadership Stories. And until then, here's to your own IntelliKey as you grow in your potential in your life and in your business. See you again soon. You've been listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories with your hosts, Kirsten Gouldie and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our websites, www.pureintellikey.com and www.mark-stenson.com. Thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories.